You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. This is the first of three sermons from Psalm 103 on experiencing the love of God in leadership. The sermon was given at the Living Leadership Pastoral Refreshment Conference in January 2007. The preacher is Dave Burke from Bethany City Church in Sunderland. And uh, during the course of these next three sessions, we're going to be looking at Psalm 103. Um, my dad was a carpenter, and uh, one of the things that I will always treasure is when I was about five, my dad taught me to cut a piece of wood straight. And uh, he, he got alongside me, and he showed me how to use a saw, and he said, you have a go. So I had a go, and uh, it all went badly pear-shaped and wonky, so he took the saw off me, and he started again, straightened the cut out again. And I'll never forget get what he said. He said, don't push the saw. Don't press the saw. Just let the weight of the saw do the work. And I'll try again, and it would go wonky, and he would take over. And, uh, and eventually I learned that, that truth, which is an amazing truth if you want to cut something straight. Don't push the saw. Just let the weight of the saw do its own work, and, uh, and the cut will be amazingly straight. Try it when you get home. I believe that works with the Word of God, with the Bible. Don't push the Word of God. Let the Word of God do its own work. That's what I'm going to try and do over these next few days, just to share with you the limited insights and understanding that I have of this, probably the most majestic psalm, I think so anyway, in the Bible. I think it was Alfred Lord Tennyson who said that prose are the right words in the right order. Poetry are the best words in the best order. And as this is the greatest poem that I can think of, anything I say about this psalm will not be as good as the psalm itself. Let's let the Word of God just do its work, not pushing it. And of course, just as my dad would take the saw off me and show me how it's really done, should any of you like to take this off me and show me how it's really done, I'll be over the moon, step up any time. I live in Holtonley Spring, which is a small town on the western edge of the city of Sunderland. And uh, uh, Holtonley Spring kind of curls up a hill and at the top of that hill that's where I live and behind behind my house there's a field at the very top of the hill itself and that's a field I often walk around go around each morning with the dog just praying sometimes trying to commit to memory scripture reflecting on things in the middle of this field there's a a tumulus a, a burial mound with seven trees on it we call it the seven sisters locally About 3,000 years ago, which is when the locals made that burial mound to bury their tribal chieftain, they scraped the soil from off the rocks around about, because the soil is very thin in that area, made this mound, placed their chief in the center, and covered him over with soil, and left him there. At about the same time, at about the same time, a tribal chieftain of ancient Israel, was writing these words, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, just the first few verses of this amazing psalm, written at the same time as that mound was built just at the back of my house. I don't know about you, 
But I think the job that we do is probably one of the most difficult and the most challenging in modern Britain. Why do I say that? I say that because the tide is running out in our nation and churches are shrinking. Our jobs, our occupation, what we do for a living is honoured no more, it's more likely to be greeted with hmm, derision. People who despise us than respect. We live in a society where professional people of any sort are used now to be challenged. If if you're a doctor and you see a patient, the chances are they've been on the internet already and they know what's wrong with them and they know how they ought to be treated. How much more is that the case if you're a pastor? Now we've been watching Christian TV and we know what's really wrong and your problem pastor is your spiritual pond life compared with the people who really know what's going on. A pastor isn't the only voice being heard by the congregation. And our friends and family, my wife, Kathy, she has a a job in a big outfit with a, a career structure and a support structure and an appraisal structure and all kinds of other things that are there for her, giving her the sense, a real sense, of forward movement and developing and growing. And so many of us just seem stuck in an organization that's muddling from one crisis to the next. And our job, compared with theirs, is like herding cats. So difficult. So unrewarding in so many ways. And if you're married and your wife works, you hardly ever see each other. And the list could go on and on. Recently, a few months ago, a group of us got together to talk about the difficulties in pastoral work and sustaining people in pastoral work. And someone said something that stuck in my mind because it was true and might stick in yours as well. There's a darkness at the heart of many Christian organizations. They don't seem to be able to help hurting people. I think we're engaged in one of the toughest professions that there is. Not just because the work we do is tough and underappreciated, but the chances are that most of us, if not all of us, are under-supported by people who, when they really want to support us and love and care for us, don't know how. And so we muddle along. And so we need this song. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Most commentators that you read detect a kind of hesitancy in that opening line. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And it's a leap of imagination, I suppose, to imagine that he is. There's some good reasons for it. We'll come to that at the end. Praise the Lord on my soul. I'm not entirely sure that I want to. I'm not entirely sure that I feel like doing so. I'm not entirely sure that God has done anything for me that's worth praising at all. Most commentators detect a certain hesitancy in that line. It's a leap of imagination to detect it. But then this is a poem. And you're meant to interpret poetry with a certain amount of imagination. This isn't an essay by the Apostle Paul. It's a song that was written by one of the greatest blues singers of all time, King David. And it happens not to be a blues song. But it's almost as though he's starting out with, Why should I praise God? What has God ever done for me? Uh, You'll know the Psalms, probably many of you better than I do, and you'll know that many of them are are problematic. The last time I read through the whole um, collection of Psalms, I kind of worked out about 50 out of 150 were exceptionally difficult to 
to understand. C.S. Lewis once described the people who wrote the Psalms as whinging, whining, vindictive children, now praising God, but only so that they could get what they really wanted, the destruction of their enemies. That's difficult. Thinking about that, actually, I realise more and more, and I hope we'll see this a couple of times during the course of this week, that the people who wrote those psalms bear an uncanny and uncomfortable resemblance to me. Imagine falling down a well, or rather being pushed, and you hit the bottom with a splash, and then you realise to your horror that your feet don't touch the bottom. You're floating in the water, treading water to stay alive, and the well walls are smooth and unclimbable. And the first thing that you do, of course, is to shout out to God, Oh God, please save me from this well. Oh Lord, I love you. Look at all I've done for you. Please rescue me from this pit. And then, of course, as you're praying that God will deliver you, you remember the rotters who kicked you in there. And you start to speak to them. And then you think, oh, oh, the panic sets in. Please, God, I will do anything. Rescue me from this darkness. And the noise that comes out of the top of the well for any passing bystander sounds like about a third of the Psalms, alternating from blessing to curse. And that mixture of prayer and cussing comes very naturally to me. I don't know about you. For a pastor, I can cuss pretty good. Ask Pete Childers, he'll, he'll tell you. But David's past that stage in this song. It's almost though he's fallen down the well, but he's noticed that there's a ladder going up the side of the well. And with a particularly powerful kick, he can grab a hold of the bottom rung of that ladder. He pulls himself up. I mean, David was a piece of ancient Israelite beefcake on that first rung. And he gets the second rung, and he gets the third rung. And before long, he's climbing out of the well. Think of the truth as a ladder to get you out of the pit. And there you have the picture. This psalm is David's mind lecturing his heart, his feelings, as to why on earth he should praise God. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. What on earth has God ever done for me? And that, that example, I think, that example of David teaching his heart, taking what he knows, and telling his heart to feel an appropriate response to what he knows. It seems to me that's an essential skill for Christian ministry. And one of the reasons why when Marcus phoned me up and said, would you like to do this? The first thing that sprang into my mind was Psalm 103. Because I can genuinely say to you without any exaggeration at all, that in the year 2006, Psalm 103 saved my life. Psalm 103 turned what for me was probably the darkest moment of 23 years of Christian ministry into something tolerable and then something understandable and then in the end, well I haven't quite lost the urge to say joyful but it's getting there. This is a tremendous piece of work as David takes the truth and lectures his heart with the truth. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Then the 
Comfort is an interesting word in our society because it's a, it's a kind of, um, well, it's not a positive word, is it? Living on benefits. I, I would love to watch that series on TV, Shameless. But my wife, Kathy, won't watch it with me. I asked her last night, why not? And she said, quote, everything I've ever seen about it really repels me. It's the worst in life presented as entertainment. Here you get this guy, Frank Gallagher, with his two, his wife and his lover, and his umpteen kids, living in complete shameless dependence on the state, on everybody else. Parasitic, but demanding at the same time. A dysfunctional family on a northern council estate. And what strikes me about what I know about the series Shameless is this. I wonder if that's how God sees me. A skanky, demanding, whining, pouting, living on benefits. Oh, we all are living on benefits. We all are much worse than we really think. Forget not his benefits. Think of these things, the, the different truths of Psalm 103 as rungs on that ladder that leads from the water at the bottom of the well to escape at the top of the well. So we're going to look at the first one. And the first one is forgiveness and healing. I guess one of the most difficult things perhaps to forget is our need of forgiveness. And the thing that occurs to me most often as we say those words, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, yeah, okay, but am I really that bad? Hey, I'm a Christian pastor. I've been teaching this stuff for decades. And I think to myself, am I really that bad? And it's a great exercise, I think, to look at Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is an amazing psalm. It's another one of those psalms that seem to be problem free. And so you really get into the swing of it about God and his creation, how everything depends on him, about the animal kingdom, about the cedars of Lebanon, and the birdies and the waters, and man going out to do his work till evening. And everything depends on God, and it's all rather wonderful. And then at the end, in, uh, in verse 35, it says, But may sinners vanish from the earth, and the wicked be no more. And for years, that phrase spoiled that psalm for me, until I realized what it was really saying. You and I have absolutely no place on this planet. You and I just don't belong here. And it's the sense that Peter had in, in his own boat on the Sea of Galilee, as he and his brothers hauled in the miraculous catch of fish, no great shakes in our imagination, but to a man who was an expert at fishing on, on the Sea of Galilee, an absolutely stunning personal miracle screaming at him about who Jesus really was. And Peter kneels in the bottom of his own boat and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's the penny drops of Peter that he is a nice guy, a middle-class guy, who'd lend the Son of God his own boat for the afternoon, realizes that there's something deeply wrong with him. It's sin. And God, it is, who forgives all our sins. Even nice people are separated from their Creator by their sin. And he forgives all our sins. I just wonder, you see, if, 
as I watch uh, Frank Gallagher on the Chatsworth housing estate in Manchester, delightfully ironic name, living his dysfunctional dependent life on benefits, whether God looks at us, nice middle class people, orderly families, orderly homes, orderly bank account probably, orderly this, orderly that, doing our best, loving our neighbours as skanky, over-dependent sinners who haven't got the remotest idea how unacceptable their lifestyle is to a God who made this world and everything that's in it. And so when I say those words, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a pretty big deal. That's pretty wonderful. He's faithful because he loves us. And he's just. Jesus died for my sin. So he's not going to punish me again for it and again and again for a lifetime. He is going to forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now Psalm 103 and verse 3 talks about him forgiving all our sins and healing all our diseases. And have you noticed forgiveness is instant but healing often isn't. And there's an example of that in David's own experience. I'm thinking of the Bathsheba affair. As David goes to the Lord and cries out his confession to God for all that he's done, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder, and receives God's forgiveness. But the child still dies in spite of seven days of prayer and fasting. And there are those who insist, you know, that if we don't receive immediate healing, then it's because we lack faith. And imagine that you've prayed for healing but haven't yet received it. Well, you've got a choice. You can torture yourself, or more frequently, allow other people to torture you with your lack of faith. Or you can trust God for the healing of the whole of your being in glory. Not now, but then. And settle down with peace. A peaceful heart and a settled mind. I think that's faith, personally. And sometimes it is that healing isn't as instant as sin. And there's probably a spiritual reason for that. That sin shatters my relationship with God and it needs to be forgiven immediately. But affliction might well deepen my walk with God and might not be dealt with until later. But one thing is for sure, he will heal all my diseases. Come back to that before the end of this session. That's the first run. Forgiveness and healing. Here's the second run. It's redemption and compassion who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. I, I became a Christian when I was at university and uh, I pretty quickly polished off the New Testament. And the New Testament is glorious. Talking about the cross and the resurrection and the resurrection to eternal life and heaven and glory and a fantastic vision of glory in, in the book of Revelation. I felt I kind of had a, a, a grid reference for most things. And then, and then I read the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was a horrible puzzle to me. Because in the Old Testament the dead guys all wound up in a place called Sheol. And apparently they never got out of it. 
And the question of eternal life didn't seem to be discussed in the same way that it was in the New Testament. As I got to know the Old Testament a bit more, I began to realise that now and again the Old Testament dropped the occasional bunker-busting hint about there being a little bit more to it than that. I'm just thinking, for the time being, of Psalm 16 and uh, verses 9 onwards. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life, and will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You're not going to let me rot in the grave. You are going to fill me with joy, eternal pleasures at your right hand. Almost as though for David, who wrote that song, the clouds parted and he saw a doorway, and then the clouds covered it again. He had an inkling, he had a sense, he could drop those hints in his songs. So I think we ought to take the pit in Psalm 103 and verse 4 as a bit more than just the pit that gets dug for you at the end of your life and your body is dropped in. He's talking about something much, much deeper from which God will redeem our life. The resurrection to eternal life. The pit's deep. And the resurrection is massive. As one black preacher once said, we ain't waiting for the undertaker, we're waiting for the upper taker. He redeems your life from the pit. And the great thing about this psalm is that as these immense gifts are dispensed to us, they're not dispensed with cold charity or parsimonious reluctance. We're not dealing here with a government department who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. That word love, loving kindness, Miles Coverdale translated it, is tremendously important in this psalm. We're going to touch on it a few more times before the end of our week together. But just for now, let's reflect on the anemic meaninglessness of the word love in our culture. I listened to Radio 2, more or less continually, coming down from Sunderland earlier on. Three hours of Radio 2. Almost every song was about love. Almost none of those songs touched on what love is really about. What's love really about? I came across a great definition of love a few years ago in a book called um, The Relate Guide to relationships. And, and in this guide, um, in this book, they quoted John Cleese. And John Cleese defines love like this. Love is the ability to see another person's need and then to go and meet that need. I think that's pretty good for a Monty Python guy, isn't it? The ability to see somebody else's need and then to go out and meet that need. He crowns you with love and compassion. This is a love which is, which is dynamic. God's love is dynamic. God's love is constantly on the move, seeing our needs and then meeting those needs.
This love is not just dynamic. This love is focused. This love is sharply focused on you. He sees you. He knows you. He sees you're going out and you're coming in. He saw you when you were in the hidden place in your mother's womb. He sees you. He observes you. It's focused on you. This love is dynamic and it's focused and it's fruitful. As we become the objects of God's love, so... So God begins to see changes taking place in us that might seem small to us, but are overwhelmingly pleasing to him. As through his presence in our lives, we begin to show, we begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And I remember my joy real joy. As I went into school as a a seven-year-old one morning and looked at the jam jar with the blotting paper round the side and the two great big kidney beans between the blotting paper and the gas and the water in the bottom, the sheer exhilaration of seeing that my kidney beans had germinated, my roots were going down and all hairy and the green bit had already developed and that was only in the space of a week. Does God see that joy, feel that joy as he looks at the work of the Spirit in his life, in our lives, as he looks at the changes that his presence is bearing fruit in our lives. Love, God's love is dynamic, it's on the move, it's focused on you and on I, it's fruitful and above all it's passionate, absolutely burning, white hot passion that you should get from where you are to glory and take as many other people with you as possible. God's love, the ability to see your need, my need, and the ability to go out of his way to meet that need. That's the second rung. It's redemption and compassion. We'll revisit that word love before very long. Here's the third rung. It's satisfaction guaranteed. Verse 5, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. If you have a look at the commentaries on this verse, they'll tell you it's a really difficult verse to translate. Just what is it that gets satisfied? The new uh, American um, Standard Bible has, who satisfies your years with good things. Um, I have at home a, a literal Hebrew translation that says, you, who, satch, who satiates your mouth or your ornament with goodness. Derek Kidner, whose commentary on the Psalms is fantastic, says, all options are precarious. He knows, I don't, I don't know any Hebrew. But the great thing about this passage is whatever it is that needs satisfying, it gets satisfied with good things. Okay? (laughs) And it's a great thing, because your youth gets to be renewed like the eagles, which is uh, the back end of of verse 5. That refers to an ancient legend, uh, an old midrash, that says that when the eagle got old, it was renewed and it became young again. It's a familiar idea, actually, in the Bible, isn't it? Familiar from, uh, well, Isaiah chapter 40, for example. Here's a a vision of what's going to happen, what could happen. Written in a Jerusalem that lies in ruins. The dream of the covenant is in tatters. 
The sword of judgment has fallen. And God speaks to Isaiah and says, Go and comfort my people. Tell her that her sin is paid for. Inundated with disaster, Isaiah gives God's people the words they're going to need to give them the coherence that they're going to need through the years of exile in Babylon. This is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. I think of those old boys tramping the miles to Babylon, turning those words over in their minds. God hasn't finished with us yet. It just looks as though he has. God hasn't finished with me yet. It just feels as though he has. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, raids this image bank of youth being renewed. And he's describing in Second Corinthians, he's describing his own experience on a mission trip to Asia. He and his team have almost been killed. Paul was by no means sure that they were going to survive. Then he heard that the Corinthian church were being taken over and taken to the cleaners by a bunch of super slick super apostles. Only recently he'd said Titus with a very, very critical letter to the folks in Corinth. It was a risky strategy. Paul was worried sick. He'd been over the top in the letter. As soon as he pressed the send button on the email, his guts went into a knot. Should I have done that? We all know that feeling. In case you're just wondering, it's a metaphor, okay, he didn't have email. <laughs> desperate, absolutely desperate to find out what's happening in Corinth. He goes on a long yomp through Greece in a frantic search for Titus, but Titus has gone missing. Can't find him. Doors are opening for the gospel, and Paul walks out of time. Damn, he's got to find out. And it's against that background, against that background, that Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Though outwardly you are wasting away, inwardly you are being renewed day by day. Not ten miles from here is a couple that have uh, shaped my life in all kinds of ways for many, many years. And uh, they're in their 80s now. And uh, going to have tea with them is an absolute delight. Because although outwardly, um, while they're not the people they were in the black and white photos on their sideboard, Daisy sailing in the Solent and 
Oliver doing wonderful things in Austria. But inwardly, there is an incandescent power going on in there, from which those who know them just suck in refreshment and strength. And this is going on in you. That outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And coming back to Psalm 103, it is He who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. A few months ago, myself and Pete and a few of the leaders of our church were sitting in the sunshine on the, the balcony of a little house in Northumberland in the only sunny day last year. And uh, in Northumberland anyway. And we were just turning over this idea of, uh, of Christian ministry based on this psalm, looking at, at, at Isaiah 40, thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and thinking, you know, it. What we need is just to pick up the updraft of God's spirit working so that we saw and, and the energy, the labor, the, the difficulty is taken away from us and, and it's just like sort of riding on a wave. And then somebody, I can't remember who said, no, hang on a second, it's not always like that. Um, sometimes it is like that sometimes it feels as though we've caught something and things are happening in a way we couldn't have planned things are going in a way we couldn't have engineered but there are other times when we're not soaring we're flapping we're flapping like crazy just to keep up and this resonates with me because I'm a zoologist with particular interest in birds and there are two kinds of bird flight flapping flight which takes massive amounts of energy just to stay up there and soaring flight which also takes energy yeah but it's a different kind of transport altogether and actually I think that probably one of the reasons why Christian ministry right now is particularly tough is that we live at a time when there are such different, strong currents running about what the normal Christian life really looks like. I've got friends who say, no, the normal Christian life is soaring flight. Effortless. The Lord does it all. And I've got Christian friends who say, no, no. The normal Christian life is flapping flight. You've got to put in the hours. You've got to do the work. You've got to... And actually I think that both of these things are true, as so often is the case, these tensions. Sometimes we have to flap, sometimes God gives us the privilege of an updraft that just takes us for miles. But I do think there's an interesting contrast here. The eagle with his renewed youth in Psalm 103 and, uh, and verse 5. And the owl in Psalm 102 and verse 6 to 8. This is Psalm 102, verses 6 to 8. Lost it? Here it is. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. And I guess there are times in our life when we sense our youth being renewed, when we sense that the work's being done for us, all we're doing is keeping up with God's Holy Spirit. And there are times when we feel as though we're sitting on a roof in the middle of a desert, eyeing the darkness, wondering what's going to gobble us up next. 
two different kinds of bird. But those who wait upon the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. What can, what can Psalm 103 teach us about soaring versus flapping? Well first, whatever satisfied in Psalm 103 verse 5 is satisfied with good things. And I suppose that flags up the, the possibility that we might satisfy our desires with bad things. And there's no faster way to go crashing to earth than for a man or a woman in Christian ministry to satisfy our desires with bad things. Things that we know are bad. It saps our joy, it saps our strength, it saps our energy, it saps our time. And it makes us wonder, who knows? or when they're going to find out. He satisfies our desires with good things, so that our youth is renewed, like the eagles. Here's the second thing. Those who hope in and wait in the Lord will renew their strength, according to Isaiah. Those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. It's a helpful corrective, this, because I think, certainly in my church, I can't speak for your church, but in my church, modern management practice matters a great deal. I worked, have worked really for the last 10 years with a bunch of guys who are in their everyday life pretty high-powered business types. They're used to setting goals, setting down ways in which we're going to achieve those goals, achieving those goals and then moving on. And it's, it's pretty impossible not to run our church life like that. We have a business plan, we have a, a, a strategy, we have a way of going into the future. And actually, I think that's pretty good because it stops me being lazy and saying, oh, never mind, we'll just muddle on and God will bless us. You never know. It's helpful to have that. But it's also helpful to realize that we can make our plans, but it's God who's going to give the growth. We can make our plans and fill our lives with activity, but we need to balance those good things with some solid spiritual Horse sense. This is Duncan Campbell. These are days of much activity in the field of church and mission work. He's writing at the beginning of the last century. But we do well to remember that no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for neglect of the king himself. I do not believe that the devil is greatly concerned about getting between us and work. His great concern is getting between us and God. Many a Christian worker has buried his spirituality in the grave of his activity. Now those who wait on, or who hope in the Lord, are staring at him. They're focused on him. And Isaiah tells us, and Psalm 103 tells us, that you cannot crash and burn if that's what you're doing. There's another psalm. I think it's one of the loveliest little psalms. It's Psalm 1, 2, 3, so it's easy to remember, and it's a beautiful picture of what this looks like. Psalm 123, just as a picture of what it means to wait upon the Lord, just as a picture of what it means to hope in the Lord. It's a picture we no longer have in our culture, because there aren't people like this, but this is what it looks like. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, 
till he shows us his mercy. The master who with a movement of her finger can direct a slave to do his will. The mistress who with the flick of a wrist can direct her servant to do what she wants. So our eyes as God's slaves, his servants, look to him. Have mercy on us, O Lord. That's what it looks like. And those who wait upon the Lord, literally waiting for his direction, literally waiting for his command and his instruction, will rise up on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. Their youth will be renewed like the eagles. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a, a glory which fars outweighs them all. Last thing, third thing. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. An inner renewal flows from a gaze which is directed at God. It's difficult in our world because we live in a materialistic culture. It's difficult in our world because our lives, our heads, our ears are full of noise, static. We don't enjoy silence. We don't enjoy times of seeking and reflecting the way that the way that would be so helpful for us. Our gaze has always been directed towards the material, towards what this culture calls the real. And our gaze needs to look beyond the real to the one who made the real, to the real nature of the material world and the God who made it, to my real sinful nature and the solution to those problems and to the promises of what God has set out for me in the future. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. All those years ago, 3,000 years, as those guys scraped the soil off the top of Copt Hill into a mound and buried their chieftain, and they looked out, as I often look out from that same hill, over the hills of East Durham, over to the Pennines, about 20 miles distant, watching the sun just setting behind those hills. I wonder what they gazed at as the sun set, or they gazed at the setting sun, and almost certainly found in the setting sun and the rising sun some inkling of hope that death was not the end. Not much, but just an inkling. And here's David, thousands of miles away, but writing at the same time, who sees more than an inkling, he sees a promise, a glimpse of someone who's going to come, a glimpse of something that's going to happen, the serpent crusher who's going to arrive and put everything right. And he sees a promise. And our privilege is that we look back on a promise that's been fulfilled, on the serpent who's been crushed, on sin that's been dealt with, on the death barrier that's been broken. So as we look at this psalm, we load it with Christian meaning, and not just Old Testament, Old Covenant meaning. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my inmost being, 
Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we just opened the door on this song and we thank you for the way it sings to our hearts of your absolutely focused love, your passionate love for us, the love that will not let me go. And we thank you, Lord, that as we meet together for the first time ever as a group of people, we meet as a group of people that you know personally that you love deeply every one of whom has a tremendous future that we can only wonder at thank you living God that you see my needs and you have dynamically stepped into history to meet my needs thank you Amen Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.